Contending for the faith one verse at a time. Welcome to Truth Matters Church. After an extensive examination of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation, we are about to move on to John's prophetic visions. But first, let's recap what we learned in our study of these first century churches and Jesus' commendations, condemnations, and warnings. This is part one of two in this special recap message. Here is Pastor Alex Contaroja. So today will be a special study in that we will be doing a recap of all of the seven letters to the seven churches. And, you know, Jeremy, in our, in our passing conversation, if we say that it took us close to a year to get through these seven letters to these seven churches, I like to frame it this way. These are seven epistles. These letters to these churches could very well be its own epistle, just like Philemon or just like Philippians. So I'd rather say it took us nearly a year to go through seven epistles than just these seven letters to these seven churches. And that's what we did. But what we're going to endeavor to do is to be able to recap at a high level of what we've learned during this journey. And here's just a brief overview of what we're going to be studying today. As we're looking at these seven letters to these seven churches, we're going to be reminded just briefly of their historical context, their commendations, if any, their criticisms, if any, the exhortations, and then lastly, the promises. And as we've learned when we went through these seven letters to the seven churches, that there is a consistent theme to these letters. It starts off with the Lord Jesus Christ identifying himself. And as he identifies himself, oftentimes he will take descriptive terms that would be very relevant to its hearers in its day and the town around it. And he would draw on that and use it to apply to himself and the glory that he has and has been given to him by his Father. And as he introduces himself in these descriptive terms, he's provided the result of his assessment. So he's looked at these seven letters, these seven churches back in chapter one. And as he's looking, he's not only looking at the angel assigned over that church, but he's also looking at the heart and at their deeds and behavior. So the flow of these letters is he introduces himself in such descriptive terms, and then he renders his assessment. And if there was any commendations, he will commend them. And if there is any criticisms or shortfallings, he will call that out. In every one of these letters, there is this exhortation to keep on or to repent and keep on. And then lastly, he gets to the promises. And one of the things that I resisted to do in this entire study is to try to frame it a certain way, meaning there are interpretive challenges in studying these letters. And there's a lot of teachings out there that suggest this is how you are to interpret these letters to these churches, and this is what it's communicating. What I've resisted to do is to take on something that's just necessarily been passed down. And as you recall, my approach has been, I'm going to come here with a blank slate. And I'm going to continue to come here with a blank slate. And my prayer is, Lord, you're the potter, and I'm the vessel. Whatever you choose to reveal, amen. 
Whatever you choose to conceal, amen. But whatever we can understand and glean from your word, we give you glory, honor, and thanks in advance. Once we recap these letters, I took some time to just do some reflecting. What is the intent of these letters? What is it intended to communicate, not only to them, but then to the churches that follow? And I've made some observations, and I'm finding it's pretty remarkable, even as we're starting to glean into these great mysteries. So once we're done with the recap of these seven letters to these seven churches, I want to share with you, coming with that, in that spirit of being a blank slate, saying, okay, now that we've gone through the disciplines and that we've exercised the principles in how to handle the text, what is this all about? Is it just to the seven letters? To the, is it just to these seven churches? Is it something bigger or is it both? And we'll share with you some of those takeaways in going through that process. With that, are you ready to recap the first letter that we've looked several months ago now? And the first letter to the first church was in Ephesus. And what I try to do is, I did try to capture the essence of these letters. What was characteristic of this first letter to Ephesus? And I think it should be no surprise It's the church that left its first love. As far as its historical context, we learn that it's likely Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos that they were instrumental in strengthening the church in Ephesus. These are familiar names, especially as you read the epistles. And Ephesus, back then, it was home of one of the seven great wonders of the world. And one of those great wonders was the temple of Artemis. Other characteristics of Ephesus, and this is also consistent with the other towns. There is worship of other deities, of course Artemis, and even the goddess Cybele. There was demon possession in Ephesus. There was those who practiced sorcery. And something that was interesting is when we were going through the historical context was in the town square, in or around the town square, there was a tree of life that wasn't rooted in the true and living God, but other some other pagan beliefs. But there was this tree of life, or purported to be a tree of life, and Jesus, in this letter, points to the true tree of life, which is in the paradise of his God. One of the other observations as we looked at the historical backgrounds of this town and city, is it had a thing with goddesses. Goddess Cybele, as I mentioned, was a woman. And when you hear Artemis, she was also named Diana. Came after Cybele, was a woman. And one of the characteristics that we've learned from these goddesses is that they both shared this great mother of life titles. So these goddesses claimed to be the mother of life. And what we also learned was that the church of the Virgin Mary was in Ephesus, that there were councils councils held in Ephesus on how to view Mary. And what came out of these councils was that Mary was sinless, the great mother of God. In other words, she too is a goddess. So Artemis of the Ephesians sure looks similar to now this evolution 
and who we know as Mary, the mother of God, and they both happened to be birthed in Ephesus. As far as their commendations, they were known for their deeds. And when I say deeds, just think their works or behavior. It's what they do and their character. How do they react, especially in the face of fierce opposition for their faith? They were commended for them not tolerating evil men. They tested those who called themselves to be apostles. And remember, do you remember, recall Paul when he had to defend his ministry? And he started to get a little passionate and upset on these Judaizers. And there's also those who purported to be super apostles. And Paul, in defending his ministry, he's saying that he is the true apostle. And that apostleship was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he has the marks of the apostle. Well, first of all, not only can he do signs and miracles and wonders to authenticate his ministry, but he also had proof by the lashes and the beatings that he took in proclaiming the gospel and being faithful to that call. But there was other apostles or those who claimed to be apostles, and one of the characteristics of this church is they tested them and found them to be false, so they were commended for that. They had perseverance and they endured for the gospel and had not grown weary. And one of the things they also had going for them is they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And when we learned about the Nicolaitans, the scripture didn't really give us anything to work with. But when we look at the other mention of Nicolaitans in the other letters, we know that it held similar teachings to Balaam. So the Nicolaitans in all likelihood also ate food sacrificed to idols, and they committed acts of sexual immorality. And the believers in Ephesus, or the church there, they hated that. So they were commended. But when he gets to their criticism, but he goes, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And what we learned is this was prophecy. And this leaving or departure occurred sometime after the penning of this letter, so sometime after 95, 96 AD. And when we hear left to first love, and if we use it in our vernacular, it's also like saying, for those of us who have had been in love, or your first love where you've loved someone fully through and through, that person will always have that place in your heart because you gave them your heart at that point in time. And when Jesus says to this church in Ephesus that you have left your first love, it kind of echoes what Jesus told Peter that you will deny me three times. When, when Jesus told Peter that you will deny me three times, how many times will Peter deny him? Did he have a choice? Or was it already confirmed? That's for another conversation. But there's nothing that's going to change that. If he said you're going to deny me three times, you're going to deny him three times. End of story. So when Jesus tells this church in Ephesus that you have left your first love, they will leave their first love. There is you know, something that I reminded us throughout the studies. I know we can get focused on the church and the people, but when he says to the agalos, to the angel over that church, there is this dual audience And that angel, too, left their first love. And we will see that there are some undertones along that. There was this falling away, even in the angelic realm. 
when we get to the exhortation piece in Ephesus, this letter to Ephesus, when he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. If you recall, we went through Ephesians once again at a high level. And what Jesus was exhorting them to do is what Paul commended them that they were doing at the time Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. They were faithful in Christ Jesus. They aspired to know the mystery of His will. Their hope in Christ thrived. They viewed themselves as God's own possession. They prioritized to bring Him glory. They demonstrated love to all the saints. They've read, studied, meditated, and applied Scripture. They no longer walked in their former manner of life. And they didn't entertain strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. So when Jesus exhorts them to remember from where they have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, here's a list of what they were called to do again. And I've mentioned this just recently, just now in passing. I want to make a conjecture here in this exhortation. I want to ask us a question. Can angels who joined Satan in the angelic rebellion repent? I said probably not. But the angel over this church might have been given a small window of opportunity. When he says, therefore, remember from where you, the angel, including the angel over them, have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. This phrase, remember from where you have fallen. Who fell from the sky? When Jesus said, I saw Satan, I'm telling you now, fall from heaven. How far has Satan fallen? He has fallen. There are some allusions here in this phrase, remember from where you have fallen. And I can't help but be drawn to the angel over them. And to kind of demonstrate this point, I'm saying probably not, they probably couldn't repent because their fate was sealed. But nonetheless, this offer was extended. When you get to Revelation 12, and this is after the seventh trumpet, and there is a war in heaven. We'll pick it up. And there was a war in heaven. Verse 7. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. Catch this. And there was no longer a place found for them. Satan and his angels in heaven. This is after the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is even ahead of us. That hasn't happened yet because part of that seventh trumpet is the great mass resurrection. So after that seventh trumpet is blown, there's going to be an angelic war and Satan and his angels will be thrown down. How far have they fallen? And there's no longer a place found for them. So I'm just saying, based on this letter and this dual audience, There seems to be this small window of opportunity for this angel over this church to repent. Because remember, he he is the one who has the seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars are the seven angels over these seven churches. So it's just something that we've gleaned from. Now to the promise. And I mentioned this. Since Ephesus had their own version of the tree of life, Jesus calls their attention to the true tree of life which is not on earth, but in the paradise of God, and that is to come in the new heaven and the new earth. And here's a promise that applies to all who believe in Christ. We will all be allowed to eat from that tree of life 
which is in the paradise of God in the new heaven and the new earth. This is a promise from the very lips of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. He will allow us to eat from that tree of life. Now there's teachings out there that says, oh, the tree of life in the garden, it's symbolic of Christ. We know that Christ is life and Christ is eternal life. In him was life and in him was the light of men. But I wouldn't go so far to say that he was the tree of life that was in the garden. There was a tree of life in the garden of Eden and they were prevented from eating it, period. But they will be permitted to eat it, or at least believers, in the new heaven and the new earth when everything is restored to its former glory. So that was Ephesus. The second letter was the church of Smyrna. And I think this is, this is the popular opinion out there on what is characteristic of this church. Smyrna was the persecuted church. And what was characteristic of them as part of their exhortation was living faithful no matter the cost. In Smyrna, when we looked at the historical context, the church founder is unknown. It did have a nickname of the crown city. And that nickname, Jesus uses that as an opportunity to point and call our attention to the crown of life or the crown, our promised crown, and what's encompassed in it. Smyrna, the city itself, it had a reputation of being raised from the dead. And as you recall, Alexander the Great, he had a desire to restore Smyrna to its former glory. But Alexander the Great, even though he conceived this idea to restore Smyrna from the ashes or the rubble, so to speak, he didn't live to carry that out, but his successor did and carried on that desire. Smyrna was known for their commodity of myrrh, and they too had several shrines erected to Greek gods, goddesses, Roman emperors. Do you remember our study of Polycarp? And we started to look some of these at some of these figures, popular figures of the early church. You know, Polycarp, discipled by John, he later became a bishop in Smyrna, but he was subsequently martyred for his faith. Their commendations. They experienced tribulation for their faithfulness and poverty, hence what's characteristic of them, the persecuted church. And though they may not be considered rich economically, Jesus reminded them that they were truly rich where it matters, and that's into the heavenly things. As far as criticisms, Smyrna had none. And they were one of two churches not to receive any criticism. And the other one, as we'll see, was Philadelphia. As far as exhortations, just because Christ had no criticism, the exhortation's still there. And our Lord exhorted them to endure enemies of the gospel, whether it be by the government or the Jews, a.k.a. the synagogue of Satan. He exhorted them not to be fearful of impending tribulation and he warned them that some will be thrown into prison for 10 days and he calls them just remain faithful at all costs even if that costs them their lives and what we've been learning as believers in Jesus Christ you know currently right now we're we're living in a time especially here in the western world where people or believers aren't being persecuted 
in terms of being tortured and killed for their faith. But if the time comes and that is no longer the case, then this is very instructive for all of us, and that is to remain faithful at all costs, even if that costs us our very lives. And on to the promises. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Faithful believers, we're not going to experience a second death. There is a second death that's in store for the unredeemed. But the promise for us, for believers, for remaining faithful, is we won't experience a second death. And as we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, death is the pathway or the door for us to be united with our Savior. As the Apostle Paul puts it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Once we die once here, we're never going to die again. And that's a promise that's in store for us for remaining faithful at all costs, even if it costs us our very life. So just as the apostles and believers in Smyrna before us have suffered and endured and were faithful even unto death, and they will be given a crown of life, so too all believers of all time who are faithful, even if faced with death, will receive the same crown by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do want to make a conjecture here. Because when you start to think about the reward system, the heavenly reward system, Scripture doesn't give us too much, but we do know that there is some sort of reward. Meaning, generally, of course, as believers in Jesus Christ and being redeemed, we're all going to receive the same salvation, the same eternal life. But there's also this idea of being rewarded for our deeds and what we've done, whether good or bad. So here's a little conjecture. Does this mean that every single one of us are going to have the same crowns? Now that we've gone through this study, I say no. You know when Paul says, there is now set before me the crown, I don't think I'm going to have the same crown as the Apostle Paul. I think we can kind of get an idea, even in our military, I'm not too familiar with how the badging goes. I just know that the more badging you get, the more decorated you are. Is it possible that these crowns can have some distinct indications for those who have died and those who haven't? For those who are faithful and face it, you know, even unto death? I think we'll all get a crown, but it's also possible that as part of this reward system, there could be some variation in those crowns. So I see that's possible. You ready to go to the next letter? Pergamum. And what's characteristic of Pergamum? Where Satan's throne is. This was the letter where I'm, I was stumped. Because when we broke this down, I hit a wall. It's where Satan dwells and where his throne is. And I looked to see, was there an actual throne anywhere? Some have suggested the altar of Zeus, but Zeus was an altar, not a throne. And never once in Scripture was throne and altar synonymous. Nonetheless, this is characteristic of this town, and it's where Satan's throne is. This too, the church founder was unknown. But as far as Pergamum, they were a major producer of parchments. And the city was considered the great city of the Greek gods, the goddesses, and Roman emperors. Zeus and Athena 
were prominent figures and influences in this town. It was known for an ancient location of healing, entrenched in idolatry, witchcraft, and sorcery. And as I mentioned, it was the city where our Lord says where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. And Jesus calls out by name this man by the name of Antipas. And when we looked to church history and tradition, we learned that just like Polycarp, Antipas was discipled by John, who was a former leader in Pergamum. And Antipas was martyred, as our Lord indicated. And I made kind of the quip. I don't know how it is to make disciples here in the Western world today. Imagine going to seminary. I say that with air quotes. And when you graduate graduate seminary, the outcome is going to be your beheading. That's your graduation. That's kind of what happened if you were (laughs) discipled by the very apostle themselves. Their commendations, they held fast the gospel. They got the gospel right. They didn't deny Christ even during severe Roman persecution, just like it was when Antipas was martyred. Criticisms in Pergamum, some of them held to the teaching of Balak and the Nicolaitans. And something that they had in common, they ate food sacrificed to idols and they engaged in sexual immorality. So if you held to the teaching of Balak, you would attribute that to Balak, but you're doing the same thing. Or if you held to the teaching of Nicolaitans, you engaged also in the same things, eating food sacrificed to idols and engaging in sexual immorality. It's really flip a coin in terms of which god or goddess you serve. Exhortations for Pergamum. He says, repent or else they will be treated as disobedient sons of Israel in the Old Testament who rebelled against God and against Moses and who were judged and killed when they held on to such teaching. If you recall, when we went back to the Old Testament here and we looked at the teaching of Balak, we know that such teaching and its influence involved Baal worship and Asherah worship. And using them as examples when God wasn't pleased with them and tens of thousands died because they engaged in such sinful acts. And Jesus is warning them, if they do not repent, he himself will wage war against them with the sword of his mouth. When we get to the promises of Pergamum, I did make the, you can say, not necessarily make a case, but make a proposition. First, let me say this. Would it disappoint you that not every promise applies to you? And that there are many promises that maybe for the church, maybe for Israel, you know, and even subgroups within those groups? If you've assumed that every single promise has to apply to you because you're a believer, unless Scripture is clear that that's the case, fine. But if it's qualified by something, then it doesn't necessarily apply to you. I'll give you one example. When we start to get to the next chapter and forward, and when John in his vision, he sees souls under the altar in the temple. And when John was asked, well, who are they by the angel? And John says, you know. And he goes, these are they that came out of the great tribulation. 
and the sun will no longer beat on them. And they were given white robes. There's a lot of teaching out there because we're a believer. That somehow must apply to us. How about this? It's qualified. They were beheaded. And they were treated a certain way. And they were clothed. If you weren't beheaded, would it be news to you that that's not you under the altar? Because he saw souls that had been beheaded that came out of the Great Tribulation. So my case in point is, as we're studying these promises, sometimes it's qualified. And don't necessarily assume that because you're a believer, every single promise that has been made in Scripture applies to you and applies to me. And that could very well be part of the reward system when our Lord Himself judges all mankind and renders to each person according to what He has done, whether good or evil. That said... That's why I say faithful believers, perhaps certain ones, will receive hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows but him who receives it. That aside, all faithful believers will receive a personal invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That applies to all of us. And we'll learn on what that means when we get to that portion of this book. We're making good progress here. Thyatira. How many of us have heard of drive-through history? This is kind of a drive-through history, aren't we doing it? We're kind of drive-through the seven letters to these seven churches. We're really accelerating this thing. We're taking, what, maybe seven months or so, and we're just getting cutting right to the chase. Thyatira. And this one took some time because I wanted to make sure that I try to capture the essence of 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 what's characteristic of this church in Thyatira. And this was the best that came with. Thyatira was the church of idolatrous compromise. This historical context was, is pretty straightforward, the shortest so far. We don't know who the church founder is. Now something that Thyatira was known for was for its dyes, in particular purple dye. And just like all of the other towns, it had many temples and shrines erected to Greek gods, goddesses, and even Roman emperors. Their commendations were short and sweet and to the point. They were known for their love, faith, service, and perseverance. Another thing about Thyatira that our Lord commended them for was that their deeds of late are greater than it was at first. So if you can imagine this trajectory of their deeds, it had this upward trajectory in that they were doing more for his name's sake than they did at first, and they were commended for it. But here was their criticism. They tolerated the woman Jezebel. And when we did this study, we went back to the Old Testament, the original Jezebel, who was the queen of Israel, who influenced King Ahab and the people of Israel to engage in Baal and Asherah worship. So when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were in power, they influenced the people of Israel to eat food sacrificed to idols and to engage in sexual immorality. By the time we get to the penning of this letter, apparently there was a prophetess who proclaimed to be Jezebel or named Jezebel who continued to teach and lead the people of Israel astray. When we stayed true to our rules of engagement, there was a prophetess Jezebel 
at the time of the penning of this epistle. But I'm not going to rule out that there are prophetic implications concerning the state of Israel and the world being influenced by this figure during the end times. I'm not going to rule that out, and you'll see why when we get there in a little bit. But their criticism, they tolerated the woman Jezebel. Hence why what was characteristic of this church was that of their idolatrous, you can even say tendencies and acceptance. As far as their exhortation, Jesus gave her, the woman Jezebel, time to repent, but she would not. Jesus will kill her with pestilence and throw her and her children onto a bed of sickness and into great tribulation. So I want to pause here. Remember I made the conjecture that there just seems to be somehow this small window of opportunity for those who joined in the angelic rebellion to repent. Let's say that this spirit of Jezebel behind this spirit is a fallen angel or a demon. And it even says here, Jesus gave her time to repent, but she would not. There just seems to be that these angels for a small window of, there was a small window of opportunity, but obviously we know that their fate has been sealed by their decision. And as a result, Jesus said he will kill her with pestilence and throw her and her children onto a bed of sickness and into great tribulation. He goes on to say he places no other burden on them but to keep resisting her teachings and influence. And lastly, he exhorts them. He goes, remain faithful. But he also says, you're doing deeds and you're doing more than before. Continue to proclaim the gospel until he comes. As far as the promises to Thyatira, Jesus quoted the Old Testament, and what we learned is that faithful believers will be given authority over the nations during the millennial kingdom. Doesn't it seem like right now, as far as Christianity in general, are ruled and dominated by the world for the most part? Well, the promise is the time will come and the script will be flipped where Christians under Christ will rule and dominate the nations. And this is a promise that applies for all believers. And Jesus also made this interesting promise. He says, and I will give him the morning star. And we looked at that. But we also know that in that statement, it's aligning to the same promise that he will grant him authority over the nations when Jesus returns to earth. Thank you for listening today to Truth Matters Church. In our next episode, we'll wrap up the recap of our look at the letters to the seven churches with the final three churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If you want to hear the full studies on each of these churches, you can download them for free right now at truthmatterschurch.org or simply search for Truth Matters Church on Sermon Audio. We also encourage you to check out our 24-hour ad-free stream of expository Bible teaching, scripture reading, and more. Available now at truthmattersradio.com. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.